0: There's another one you don't want to hear. <laughs> Frankly, you hit hit July. Hello, and welcome to episode 43 of the Power Chord Hour podcast. Hope you're doing well out there, and thank you so much for checking out another one. As always, I am your host, Anthony Merchant, here with you for another episode, and very excited for this one. I uh, took last week off, as I'm sure you know, and uh, if you did not check out, though, I did put a throwback episode up with uh, Stephen Jenkins a Third Eye Blind. Talked to him three, yeah, three years ago, uh, like my sixth interview I'd ever done. And uh, we just talked for a few minutes about the twentieth anniversary of their self titled debut. The one with all those hits. With with all the songs you know, all the songs you love. Um All off that record. I mean, that that record's goddamn huge. Like, one of the biggest-selling records of the 90s, easily. And uh, I got to talk to him. I was fortunate enough to do that and was nervous as hell. And uh, I I did enjoy it. But, uh, you know, and I I didn't talk about it in the throwback episode, actually, just because it was such a short interview that, like, I kept talked about the interview longer than the actual interview was. So, uh, you know, I tried to shut the hell up about it and uh, get on with it. But I I think the other thing, too, as I was talking about is I was kind of nervous about it. But it's like... He he was actually a very nice guy to talk to, but you can never get a great grasp on Stephen Jenkins because there are interviews where not not that he's like super mean, but he can be indifferent. Like basically, if he's not interested, he'll show it, you know, like he he's not someone who will fake interest kind of, you know, I'll put it, put it that way because it's like I don't mean it like, oh, he seems like an asshole or anything like that. Like he just seems like if he's bored, he'll let you know that he's bored, you know, so. I think when I went in, I mean, it was already one of my first interviews anyways, but I mean, someone of that high of profile file and, you know, also knowing that, you know, from from listening and hearing interviews from him throughout the years, because, you know, I'm I'm definitely a big fan of, uh, you know, his work. And uh, I think he's just crazy talented guy. But, you know, that was that was the thing. I'm like, you know because even I realize I'm like, I had a day to write questions. Like, I don't even think, actually, I even have like a full 24 hours. I went into work. I was told like noon, like, Hey, you want to interview him tomorrow at like 11 in the morning? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. And you know, I'd kind of go home and try to think of stuff. But then I couldn't think of too much either. Cause I only had like five, six minutes with him. But, uh, but what I'm saying is, you know, like I listen to, him, I go like, Oh, I definitely sound nervous. And I am, but the thing is, is part of it was also that because I kind of, I kind of screwed myself kind of having preconceived notions that like, oh, he might be difficult to interview, where in actuality, he was actually very nice and, uh, you know, was was uh, very kind of understanding for someone who was just kind of like, you know, a nervous kid interviewing someone who he, you know, like loves his music. And, you know, I would definitely say look up to. I mean, I, I think extremely talented guy. I mean – it. it I don't want to say that Third Eye Blind is underrated because that just sounds weird. I mean, like I like I already said, I mean, their self-titled record, like one of the biggest selling records of the 90s. You know what I mean? Like you still hear all those singles on the radio. Like it's never went away. Not at all. Like you still hear that stuff just as much as you did back in the day. But, uh, you know, I think as far as a band like albums go. I don't think they get enough credit, you know, like kind of like non-singles and, uh, you know, basically anything after that record. I think they're another one of those bands. And, uh, you know, that might be a good topic for one of these podcasts is, you know, bands who on like, you know, maybe there's like that one record that they get credit for. And a lot of times it's like their first record. But like everything after that, you know, is not like assessed fairly. And uh, there's a lot of bands like that. And actually a few who we'll get into uh, on this episode for a different reason. But, I mean, there's just certain bands where I feel it, like Saves the Day is one, where, like, first three or four records, I would even throw In Reverie in because, you know, there was a time where, and I still think it's a polarizing record, but uh, I, I think a lot of fans, the general consensus is that people like it, you know, not their favorite Saves the Day record, but I think people like it enough. And uh, I mean, I've always been a fan of it. I've always because I like that. I like I like power pop. I like that like fuzzy guitar tone and stuff like they were doing things on there kind of remind me like super drag and like, yes, I mean, it doesn't sound like a conventional saves the day record. But I mean, stay what you are really didn't either when it first came out, you know. And uh, I I love both those records, but you know Saves the Day is one of those where it's like kind of after In Reverie, I don't think they get a lot of credit for some of that stuff. And uh, and a band who I will talk about on uh, this episode, the Get Up Kids, they're another one who really, I mean, for a lot of people, after the first two records, don't don't give them enough credit. I do think on that last record though, I think they did start that in the Kicker EP um i think they kind of started getting some people who were skeptical or just you know just didn't really care about new music from them and kind of got them to listen again where like i i think they were really the last few records they've kind of found this this beautiful place where I think they're happy and content with what they're doing, but at the same time like they can do new things and they don't feel like they're like just rehashing old music, but at the same time, they've kind of figured out how to add those elements that people love about them. So it's like, you know, like problems that no by no means sounds like something to write home about part two. Like I don't and I don't mean that at all, but it's like there are elements in there where you go, Oh yeah, there's things in there that are like that's the reason why I like something to write home about so much. You know, like they're very, I think they've been very good at doing that, you know, progressing as a band, but also being able to please fans and adding those elements without being, you know, because, and and I will get into them um, very soon here when we get into the topic uh, of tonight's episode, but, uh, you know, the topic is actually slept on records, and what I mean by that, because I feel like that's a fairly general term, but when I say slept on records, I'm talking about those albums that, you know, not that they're bad because that I'm not that is the one that I do want to make clear like any album that I'm talking about tonight I I love these records they're great like they're they're some of them are my favorite uh records from the bands but they're just slept on you know they're they're things that I believe you know some of these it just depends there's different reasons the sound being so drastically different you know just such a drastic change in sound being it um you know also there's a lot of albums that I just truly think just under a different name would have sold like millions of copies you know there's there's a lot of bands like that who i think put out albums where maybe doesn't sound straight up like them but had you not put this under you know whatever that band's name is and you market it differently i think a lot of things could have been different um and i also think preconceived notions is another i think uh some bands who you know while they do have a good record people were expecting something else You know, and uh, didn't get it. I think other ones, too, are also just time in between. I mean, some bands just release such legendary records that, like, once they wait X amount of years to put something out, it's never going to meet expectations. Like, when you have multiple decades in between records, it's going to be really, really hard to you know like satisfy whatever expectations people have after decades of waiting like that's that's just what happens you know what i mean and i don't think that's anyone's fault and look at sometimes bands do come back with great reunion records decades later and that's amazing that's great to see but there's also tons that we know that you know put out a record years and years later that just shouldn't have you know that just should have kind of kept their legacy the way it was and uh you know just kind of leave it at that you know I always think that's an interesting topic too, and I mean I don't I don't want to get too sidetracked, but you know another one with that where like you know there's those certain bands who like you see who have been around since like the '60s or '70s, and they're still touring to this day, and you know they've never broken up. They've they're a band who've probably are just really road dogs who've really just probably have a few records that were really popular like decades ago, but like you look and they haven't released anything in decades you know like they've they've toured now for 30 40 years just off a of legacy and i don't know like part of me goes you know you can laugh at that or go like oh you know they're just a legacy band or this or that but it's like at the same time you go but maybe they don't want to tarnish that legacy you know what i mean like and maybe their live shows still really good maybe they're still really into it but they but even they realize it at a certain age and a certain time they're not going to put something out that would be great. You know what I mean? Like, some people just realize that, that. It's like we had a time and place, and if we put a record out now, it would just, it would not, we can't write like that anymore, you know? I've actually noticed the Vandals, a band that I love, but I've seen them say a couple times lately on uh, social media that, like, people who ask for a new Vandals record, like, and, and they say, is like, they don't realize how terrible a Vandals record for a bunch of 50 year olds would be. They're like, you don't want to hear a bunch of 50 year olds try to play pop punk. They're like, it would not be good. And yes, they're joking in a way, but it's like a half joke, half, you know what? Like, we're not going to fuck with our legacy. Like, you know, like, and they are, you know, they still, and they don't tour tons and tons, but they still tour and, uh, you know, they still do things occasionally. But they have this self-realization of like, I think they might have even said like covers are a different thing. Like maybe we would do covers, but it's like. You you don't want to hear what a record would sound like if we wrote it right now. And, you know, like that's the thing with those bands is you, you got to kind of respect that because some people do. I mean, there's some bands. I love Jawbreaker. They're one of my favorite bands. And I know that they have talked about writing music since Reuniting. And like, like they have. You know, nothing's been released, but they've talked about that they've written music together. And it's like it's a hard one because there's a part of me that really wants to hear Jawbreaker. I mean, if you listen to the show, I think you know how much I love Jawbreaker. But I also have to be honest that, you know, I mean, yes, I would listen to it, obviously. I mean, I would listen to it right away. But it's like, I would be very scared because after 20-something years, you know, can they still write a Jawbreaker record? You know, and not not in a disparaging way. It's like, You're just different because sometimes people want to put you in that time capsule of you're still, you know, Blake (laughs) Schwarzenbach. I just butchered his name so badly, Blake Schwarzenbach. And, uh, you know, like they still expect you to be 27 years old. And it's like he's not 27. He hasn't been 27 in 20 years probably. So it's like. You know, it's nothing against him. It's just more of the you've been in different band, you know, you've been in X amount of bands, at least three bands since Jawbreaker. You know, your mind's probably in a different place, you're probably in a different place, you know. There's a difference between going out and playing those old songs and then writing new stuff, you know. And like I said, I'm really not nor I'm really not against bands doing that because I mean I, I I think you do have the freedom to do that. Like you should have the freedom to do that. If you want to come back I don't think a band should have to come back and only play the greatest hits. Like, if you're like, hey, we're bored of just playing these albums that we wrote 20-something years ago, totally you should write stuff. But, you know, you you do kind of side on that, you know, on the side of caution because it's like, well, you know, what's it, what's it going to be? But, uh, yeah, you know, like tonight I want to talk about Slept On Records. And, you know, some of these hurt bands' careers and, uh, you know, some of them, I would say just about all of them actually – have become kind of cult favorites over the years. And they're just good examples of some albums just take time. You know, there's certain albums that you listen to the first time and it's just an instant thing. There's others that take forever to grow on you. Um, Like Against Me is a band that I love so much. A lot of their records had to grow on me. Searching for reform or Clarity, I remember listening to that for the first time, and I hated it. I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, I don't like this. Like, Don't Lose Touch was okay. I'm like, all right, this song's all right. And it's like, the rest of it's like, I don't get it. I don't like it. And then it took probably another three years of listening to it, and then I'm like, oh, like, this album's amazing. Like, this is a great record. Um, you know, I mean, their, their, their last few records have been like that for me. And, uh, even the Laura Jane Grace and the Devouring Mothers, like, uh, that one that she put out, like, I did not like it all that much at first. I'm like, I'm not really into this. I was happy that she didn't put under against me. And, uh, cause that's an example of that kind of, like, I want to talk about some of these records where it's like, you know, releasing an album under a different name. And I think she might've even said at one point that it was supposed to be an against me record. And I'm happy she didn't release it as that because it is a great record, but this is an example of that where I think it was an artist who was smart enough to go, it's good, but it's not it's not an against me record, you know? It, and it's like it and it has nothing to do with the quality. It's like this just sonically does not sound like it, you know. And I respect her for that, where it's like, I'm not just gonna say, I'm not gonna cause, you know, you'll sell more records and get more attention if you put it under against me, obviously. But uh, you know, I really respect that she went the other way. It's like, no, he don't release it as this. And the first like one or two listens, I did not like it. I kind of forgot about the album for a while. It came out like at the end of 2018. I listened to like once, kind of forgot about it. And then like summer of 2019, I mean, we were talking like seven, eight months after it got released, I just kind of on a whim listened to it again, and it just hit me, and I'm like, holy shit, like this record's amazing. And I mean, it's now, I mean, I think that's some of her best stuff like and and I've kind of it's funny cuz the past few weeks I think I've started listening to it again and kind of getting back into that where like I'm incessantly listening to it like I did like when I when I got into it I got into it and listened to it like probably almost every day and uh in a great workout record a great just driving around like it's kind of it's good for all occasions you know there there's a, there's a song on there for all occasions which I love but uh you know that's a good example of that um, the very first, though, I think album that I want to talk about, you know, on, on Slept On Records, and this one's kind of become, I think, a fan favorite to a point over the years. But I still think there's a lot of people who do not like this record. It's still, it's still polarizing. I think they've gotten people, more people, over to the side of liking it than disliking it than maybe in the past. But the Get Up Kids with uh, "On a Wire," and really, they're another one where I could probably say you know, all their records after something to write home about are pretty slept on. But there are a couple that, you know, I don't think are amazing. Um, mostly like automatic, but like Problems is great. You know, Guilt Show, very good record. I think that one slept on too, but I think that one gets a little more credit. And uh, and I can't remember the name of the single, but it's like track two on the record. That one did get, I think, like minor radio play. Like it, like it did have some success with that one, I think, more than On a Wire. but. You know, you listen to On a Wire. And there's another one where it talks, you know, like I was talking about with sometimes it takes time to, like, really understand a record or digest it. And, like, I, you know, I heard this record, I think, for the first time maybe in 2013, 2014. So, I mean, I heard this six or seven years ago for the first time because I got something to write home about in 2010. That was my first Get Up Kids record. And uh, that was 2010. And I remember I I had never even heard that album. I'd never even heard the Get Up Kids and uh, and and that's maybe not true. I probably did hear one or two songs on a compilation. I just assumed that I had to have at some point. But uh, I was I was seventeen. Yeah, I was seventeen, and I just because so many bands that I love just talked about how that record was their biggest influence. Like that, you know, that band, but that that record in like specifically a bunch of bands saying like, oh yeah, we wouldn't be a band like without that record. And uh, so I just kind of picked it up without ever hearing it. And then you hear Holiday, and you know, and I mean, obviously, all the other songs, but like, what—that's still one of my favorite album openers of all time. And it's just like, it's an amazing record, but it's an, you know, like Holiday, one of the greatest album openers. And then On a Wire comes out after that, and you know, it's so. And Overdue is a great song, but like, think about it—that transition from Holiday to Overdue is pretty drastically different. And I mean, the rest of the album kind of has that, you know there's there's a couple quote unquote like emo ballads I would say on something right at home about, but overall an energy on that record, you know that I mean really only four minute mile I would say had more energy than that, but I mean something right home about still has a lot of that energy a form of uh something right home about has a lot of the energy of four minute mile, I think just more well produced, but you know the energy on that, and it's a loud record, you know, and it. And it's not... The Get Up Kids, it's kind of tough. Like, I don't think they would ever want to be called pop punk. I really, I think Matt Pryor would probably roll his eyes if you called the Get Up Kids pop punk. But, I mean, they, I mean, for one, they've influenced the, the entire genre. base. Any pop punk band that came out after, like, 1999, I mean, I think is is at least somewhat influenced by the Get Up Kids, you know, whether they like that or not. But, uh, you know, they're not pop punk, but, I mean, there are those elements on there. Like, there just are. Like, I would say... Holiday is a pop punk song. And maybe I'm wrong. I mean, it's also kind of indie rock or whatever. But I would say pop punk is the best label for it if you have to label it. But like on a wire, they just I think they really went the other way. We're like something right home about not pop punk. But it's like, you know, they're in that realm, but they're also in the realm of like indie rock and alternative, you know. I mean, and it shows in who they could play with. You know, they were a band who I think could go play with Alkaline Trio, but they could also go play with Super Drag or Super Chunk. Like, they could, they could kind of do either, you know, they were one of those, they were kind of versatile in that way, which I think is good and bad. Same with, like, Hot Rod Circuit, you know, their label mates on a Vagrant, where, like, Hot Rod Circuit, or another one, where it's like, they're not a straight-up pop-punk band, but there are pop-punk elements. But at the same time, that band is hugely influenced by, like, Arches of Loaf. And uh, once again, Super Chunk and Super Drag. I mean, you know, they covered Super Drag, and I'm pretty sure they toured with them. Actually, hell, they did a split with them, actually, if I'm not mistaken. Or no, no, I'm sorry. I believe that's the anniversary. Yeah, the anniversary in Super Drag did a split. I don't think Hot Rod Circuit ever did, but they did cover Sucked Out in, uh, like, 2010 on an EP, which actually I think is, like, the last thing they ever released. But, uh, you know, just one of those bands. I mean, same with, like, the Get Up Kids were just kind of versatile in that way where it's, like, you know, they'll they'll play a replacements cover, but they can also play, you know, they they would. And I don't think they actually ever played Warp Tour, if I'm not mistaken, but they could fit in on Warp Tour. You know what I mean? Like that really wouldn't have been weird had they played there, you know, or they like play skate and surf or something like that. And I mean, same with that. The fact that I mean, like now they're on polyvinyl records, you know, like I mean, a pretty indie rock record label, you know, and then. You know, before that being on like a vagrant, you know, so I mean they are very versatile in that way and on a wired, I think shows them going more towards that indie rock side, you know, I mean you listen to that album and it's experimental, you know, it's not, it's not fast, there's not really like, you know, the the energy is not there. It's not a – and not in a bad way entirely. Like, like I like On a Wire. I really do. I would not say it's my favorite Get Up Kids record, but it's also not my least favorite. It would it would still be, like, probably my fourth. I'd probably say, like, my fourth. But it's, like, it's a good listen. It's a, it's a good record. When I'm in the mood for it, I'll listen to the whole thing. It's one of those where, like, it's not my most listened to Get Up Kids record, but if I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to listen to it front to back. And, like, I think Hannah Hold On, I think, is one of my favorite Get Up Kids album closers. Um, I I just think amazing. And I just think the, the album, you know, they were more experimental. And I think they did show, like, there's definitely a Beatles-esque, like, vibe on here where it's like you can tell there's an influence. And they were kind of trying to write that way, I think, on certain songs. And that's, like, an influence you did not hear on the first two records, you know. So I think when it came out... People were expecting, you know, something more of the continuation of something to write home about and got something so left field, you know, but in a way that I don't, you know, didn't seem to help them. You know, I mean, obviously they put guilt show out a few years later and then broke up. But I mean, I think I think even at on a wire, I don't know that they were in the best place. And, you know, commercially afterwards, I mean, did not do well. Fans were not, you know, a lot of people were not fans of it. You know, they weren't a fan of that side of them. And, uh, you know, once again, it's just, you know, when you go that far, sometimes it works. I mean, I, I would also assume that at some point when you do something like that, because I also think it was their reaction. Like, I, I do get that. They would probably say that, too. Like, I mean, there are probably interviews where they say that, but it's like it's definitely a reaction to, I think, the success of something right write home about where it's like we're going to, you know, we're not going to write Holiday Part 2 We're not going to do, you know, we're not going to sound like other bands that you're going to label as pop punk. You know, we're going to go more towards this. We're going to show you influences that we have that, you know, like we're not, you know, we're not in this field with. Because you also got to think of what was out of that time. So it's like if people were calling them pop punk or throwing them in that realm, you know, you have like Blink-182s and, you know, Green Days and MXPX and No Effects and different bands like that. All bands I love. But, you know may not be the ones that get-up kids see themselves as. You know, they may not want to be been compared to Blink-182, you know. So it's just one of those things where I think at the time this was this was the result. You know, this is the reaction. This is the reaction to being, you know, getting, getting some popularity off something to write home about and kind of getting labeled something that they didn't want to be labeled and be a part of something I don't think they want to be a part of was write something like on a wire, you know. And doing that, you know, in doing so, they didn't write a bad record, but they wrote a record that was going to take time, you know, to really get into. And it could be years. You know, you could really say years for people. And, uh, you know, and it, and it was still kind of like I was saying earlier, you know, I only heard it a few uh, years ago here. But it was it was kind of shocking. I think it, I think at some point I probably heard other people or other people had told me like, hey, you know, it sound you know, it doesn't sound like something to write home about a four minute mile but uh you know you do listen to it and there's still kind of a shock of like oh like th- like this is different you know like when you look at the timeline too it's like this is kind of weird you know by the, by the time they got to automatic when they got back together like i mean and, and that one's pretty left field but i i will say that one's not as i think under a different name i think it would have done better it's an example of that but i don't i don't know that i would have loved that record even under a different name you know like it was it was it was good indie rock, but it wasn't anything amazing. You know, I mean, I I think even if it was under a different name, like I, it would some, it would be something that I would like hear in a record store, like being played. And I'd like, I may not hate it. It may not be the worst music to listen to while I'm walking around, but I'm probably not going to go home, you know, and, and listen to that in my free time or anything like that, you know, and, and, and they've definitely gotten, you know, way, way better since then. But like, you know, they kind of experimented on that. And I think if On a Wire was something that came out maybe after, like, Automatic, people may look at it differently, you know what I mean? Like, and they may even like it more. But coming off after your biggest record and, you know, doing something so left field, it just didn't work for them, you know. And, like, Saves the Day kind of did that, but it did work for them. Not within Reverie, but with Stay What You Are, you know. There are definitely people who heard it who maybe didn't like it because it is fairly left field from – uh from uh through being cool but it's not to you know it's not as it's not as left field though i will say as on a wire but still different you know i mean you know the, it's a lot cleaner sounding but there's still fast songs on there you know there's still i didn't think they lost that energy entirely i think they i think more than anything they just added for one better production and two they just add different influences you know like i don't think it was totally Different than you know, like Campfire Kansas, now a a classic, you know, Get Up Kids song and a great song, but not something you'd probably hear on the first two records. You know, where there are some songs like Firefly, like I mean, and maybe it would have been a little. It's already fast on there; but it probably would have been even more uh, faster tempo. But I could have heard that song through being cool, I think. Whereas with the Get Up Kids, there's nothing with On a Wire that I would have heard, I think, on the on the previous record. But with Saves the Day, I mean, it did end up working. That's still. I th- I mean, that record went gold, and I mean, would would say is probably their best-selling record. Like, you know, the fan favorite, that is sometimes a fan favorite, but I feel like Through Being Cool is the overall fan favorite, but commercially, there's probably more people who would know, like, At Your Funeral, or even, like, Freakish, which, you know, is a shame that Freakish... Is, I mean, it's a shame either of those songs don't get more... You don't really hear them, like, on rock radio or anything now, but uh, you'll hear them, like, on XM and stuff, and, like, I guess... I guess maybe on like an alternative station, maybe you would play it. I would hope, you know. I mean, I know I play it on the radio show, but you know, like freakish for being a single, it's like what a great song that definitely should get more play. Like, I would love to hear that on like you know just more places. I mean, that that there's songs on that record that just deserve so much you know recognition. You know that that album that album is so great. I, I love Stay What You Are, but uh, you know I think overall that worked better for Saves the Day. Whereas with the get up kids kind of did the same thing with on a wire and uh, just kind of making a record, which I and I think I think now there's people who have come around to it. And then there's also people who never have listened to it again, who just there's a bad taste in their mouth and they never went back to it. And it's not say they may listen to it and they may not like it. You know, they may not like it anymore now. Maybe their opinion doesn't change. But uh, I, I think it's an album that's worth going back and checking out. If you know, it's if it's been years since you've heard it and you're not really a fan of it. I'd say it's worth going and checking out. You know, if your tastes have changed throughout the years, you may find that you really like it. I mean, if your tastes haven't changed, then, you know, maybe not. (laughs) You may still fucking hate it, but I would still say it's worth going back and uh, listening to. Because I do, I still think it's slept on. You know, it it definitely gets more recognition, but uh, definitely I think still. I will say this. I've seen them live a few times, and uh, when they play the On A Wire songs, I think they get the the least reaction. I, I will say they not they not get a great one. To be fair, a few of those songs though, I don't think are great live. Like that, and that's the thing with them. It's like as much as I think they want to play, which the last few, uh, you know, like including with problems, like their songs on there, I want to hear live. So bad, sadly, I missed them when they were playing when they were touring off of it. But like their songs off there, that would sound great live. But the thing with On a Wire, it's like I like those songs. But a lot of them just don't. They're just boring live. You know, they're just slow tempo. They're just not – including when you're playing those fast old songs, like you're playing Woodson or something, it's like it's hard to go into some of those songs. You know, it just kind of takes the energy out of the show. So, I mean, I think think they end up playing a lot more of like the older stuff, but it's not – I mean, the older stuff's great too, but it's like I I don't even think it's a you guys weren't good after, you know, this record. It's more of in a live setting, you want that. It's the same as saves the day. Like I love later saves the day records as well. But let's be honest, you wanna hear the fast fun shit live. You know, you don't you don't wanna hear the 10 minute like song off daybreak. Like, that's not what you want to hear live. I mean, at least not me. I'm not really into that as much, you know. It's like I want to hear the fast paced songs, the things you can like, you know, start a start a circle pit to like that's because that's just fun. You know what I mean? Like that's what translates best live. And uh, I mean, then those are the best bands. It's like I, there's so many bands out there that are just boring. You know, if their music's kind of the, the slower tempo and it's like, yeah, I mean, maybe it's good musicianship. But it's like a lot of it's just boring. Like I like it fast and sloppy live. Like it, you know, it definitely goes back to that whole energy. You know, it's it's the vibe of it, it's the energy of it. And you know, on a wire, great record. You know, live, eh? You know, there, there's much there's much better Get Up kid songs that I want to hear live. You know, than uh, than most of the stuff on there. I would like to hear. You know, I can't remember now. Maybe I have heard Hannah Hold On live because I really do. I think that's one of my that's up there as one of my favorite Get Up Kids songs. You know, like like On a Wire, good record, not my favorite Get Up Kids record, but there are a, a couple songs on there. And Overdue, Overdue is also a great, I think a great album opener. Once again, different, but, you know, I, I also get it. They had different influences. They had different things that, you know, they wanted to incorporate and they didn't want to be pigeonholed to a sound, you know. I I, I definitely think this is an album that's a reaction to su- to the success of the one before, you know. Bands do that. I mean Green Day, me and uh, Kyle talking about Insomniac a few weeks back. I mean, that album was a reaction to the success of Dookie, you know. I mean, it really was. And, and it in a in a direct in a direct way because not all all albums are. I mean, yes, you obviously have a follow-up to your successful album. But a lot of times people just go to the next kind of natural progression or they play it safe and kind of keep it to like that. There's other times where bands, you know, their reactions are kind of that, where it's like, we don't like the success, you know, we don't, because it's not really so much of we're afraid of it. You know, there's bands who obviously are like, we, the pressure of it and wanting to have that, that, you know, a second big album. But other ones are kind of like, nah, fuck it. Like, we don't want to be, we're not that. Like, we're, we're this. Sometimes it works for them, other times it doesn't, you know. And I mean, on a wire, on a wire, probably. I mean, and, and that's the thing is like, even even though people have come over or come around to it, I still don't think it was the best thing for their career at all. I mean, the the best. I mean, it, it wasn't really. Let's be honest. I mean, had they written something right home about part two, it probably would have been, you know, because then they would have went and they would have played with. Because it's the other thing too is you listen like on a wire, and it's like I don't. I do know, actually, I was going to say I didn't know who they toured with around that time, but I do know uh, Superchunk, that Superchunk opening for them, which was amazing. I would love to have seen that. But, I mean, like, if you think of certain bands who they could have toured with off the first two records, and then you think of them playing with those bands on on a wire, probably a lot of people not into it. You know, like, if they were there for fast punk stuff and, you know, more of the pop punk stuff and that side of the band, yeah, they're like, uh, what, you know, like, what is this? Like, once again, just does not translate as well live, but great record and very much slept on record, you know, very much slept on record, but going on to the next one here that I have. And I mean, these are really just, I mean, there's so many, but, uh, these were just kind of the ones that I had that I'm like, you know, these, these ones generally, I don't think get the attention that they deserve, you know, even after all these years and my next one would definitely be the suicide machines with their self title record And, I mean, this one was a shock to me the first time I heard it. I was not prepared, and not in a bad way. I actually loved this record from the first time I heard it. But just how different it was. I mean, in just a way where I'm like, I I had heard the first two records – and then I heard this, and then, I mean, they're also like the Get Up Kids, where I was, I was very late to the game, like, I first started listening to The Suicide Machines in 2012 or 2013, and, uh, you know, heard the first two records, then I went to listen to this one, and, I mean, once again, great record, but, I mean, sometimes I Don't Mind comes on, and just, how different, you know what I mean, like, how totally different from the ska punk band on those first two albums, I mean, totally left field. I mean probably even more than on a wire. Like on a wire, very left field, but I mean it's still, you know, like there's still some elements where like with this one just totally different. I mean they they and they kept a they kept fast tempos, but there's a lot more mid-tempo songs on this on this album whereas, you know, with the first two albums it's like they just come in really fast. Songs are just blazing fast. This one, they slow them down a little. They're a little longer. You know, there's there's a little more, like, structure to them. There's, like, different stuff. You definitely hear different, like, instruments in there. I mean, you know, definitely more produced and the thing with them, too, is, like, the, the Suicide Machines, as much as they were, like, a raw punk band and, like, ska punk band, like, the production was always good on their stuff. Like, you, like, and, then, you know, obviously the budget for being on Hollywood Records, but, like, even on the first two albums where it's, like, there's not a lot of added production per se, it is still produced well and it still sounds really – like, it's a good recording. Like, everything sounds really good on that album. But uh, on the third one, I think it really exceptionally sounds good. Um, I don't know who produced it off the top of my head, but, like, I thought they did a really good job at it. And, uh, you know, like, Sometimes I Don't Mind is one of those ones where that – and it was, like, a minor radio hit, but, like, that one I would love to hear more. You know, like, just one of those ones where minor radio hit in its day that you don't hear anymore, like, at all. Like, I've never heard that song – unless I'm playing on my show, um, I've never heard that song on the radio – And uh, I just think it deserves to be on there. Like, what a great pop song. But, like, that's the thing. It's like you don't really hear people saying what a great pop song when you're referencing the Suicide Machines. But you do on this album, you know. And, like, this is one of those ones where it is slept on, I think, still. But I can can understand it in that way where I go it's so totally different from the rest of their catalog that if you're not a fan of it, I'm not – I don't blame you. Like, sometimes I think people are hard-headed – where I'm just, like, you're, like, really, like, you're just being stubborn, like, if you actually gave this a chance, you would like it. But it's, like, there's people where it's, like, look at If you love, like, ska, like, that's what you love about the Suicide Machines or the punk side of them, just that really aggressive, like, just... Because they, cause they are a punk, like, they're not even really a pop-punk band. They're a punk band. Like, that, that side of them, like, they're a ska-punk band, but they don't have, like, the pop-punk of, like, Less Than Jake and stuff. Like, they're... They're, they got more of that that edge to them for sure. You know, I mean, they're kind of in a... You know, in a lot of ways, they're kind of like Kid Dynamite, but with ska, you know, like a ska influence. But, you know, I mean... And also, uh, the, other, the other interesting thing about them, I always think, too, is like how they're a ska band without a horn section. You know, obviously, there's a few songs with horns on it, but, like, they're a ska band that don't... that just never have a horn section, which... Uh, but then again... One, of, you know what I mean? One of the greatest ska bands of all time, Operation Ivy. You know, I guess they didn't have a, a horn section either. So, you know, I get. I guess you do learn from the greats. But yeah, you know, like pop music is not what you, you know, or like a pop song is not really what you would talk about when you're talking about a Suicide Machines record or a song. And uh, sometimes I don't mind is a really good one. So is Permanent Holiday. Another one which I think may have been uh released as a single. Once again, doesn't mean it was like popular, but was released as a single. And uh, another one where it's like it's just a really catchy song and it's really good. It's 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 not something that you talk about with it. And you know, yes it's good, like the Suicide Machines always write great records. But yeah, you would not talk about the songs the same way that you do on there. But they're just really good and well written. And uh and I couldn't find it anymore. I don't know if you deleted it, but uh Jason Navarro did this really cool thing for a while on his uh, Instagram where he was like talking about all the Suicide Machines. Re- actually, all his releases. He's talking about Hellmouth, Break Anchor, um like everything Suicide Machines did, compilations they were on. Like really, really cool. He did this like a year or two ago. And uh, I went to go look for it before this episode. And he, he looks like he deleted um, a bunch of stuff off his Instagram. So I couldn't find or I just couldn't find it. But uh, I remember him saying that it—he really wasn't writing songs at the time for it. It was—it uh, was the guitarist and bass player, I believe, at the time. And I'm, oh man, is it Royce? I'm trying. I'm gonna. I cannot remember their names off the top of their heads. But the the original, really, the original like kind of lineup. I mean, Derek Grant was out of the band at that point. You know, he left after Battle Hymns. But uh, besides that, you know, same uh, same lineup from the first two records but i mean he basically said that i mean he he was kind of not he was i think he was kind of getting disinterested in the band kind of at that point and they were writing the songs. I think he also said they were just smoking too much weed and listening to too much Beatles. He's like, you know, and I, I don't know that Jason has the, uh, like, I don't think he loves that record. Like, he's, you know, like, on a wire, I feel like the Get Up Kids would say they still stand by it. Like, I, I feel like all of them still like that record. Like, they're not ones who would, who would be like, we don't like it or we regret making it. I, I just don't see them saying that. Whereas uh, Jason's not a fan, I don't think of uh, of the self title record. You know, I, I think he realizes it's very, very different. And I mean, that's the other thing is kind of another reaction to that. You know, their records after that they they shifted back and actually went even more fast and uh, kind of hardcore than they did on the first two records. But I think that's what he wanted. You know, not, I don't even think it was so much to appease fans because you could be like, oh well, it didn't do the, you know, this didn't work for them, so they went back to this. But they really didn't like that's that's what he wanted to do. And, you know, that they started uh, doing that, like on the side, one dummy records and obviously like Revolution Spring this year, which is uh, still one of my favorite records of the year It's still in my top three records. I I love that thing. And uh, that's a good example of a band who, you know, not not releasing anything for man, almost two decades uh, coming back so strong with one of their best records, like honestly, one of their best records. Um, actually, funny enough, their self-title record used to be my third favorite. Um, basically, the first two Suicide Machines records. And you kind of you kind flip them back and forth. I, I really like them both equally the same, I would say. And then then the third favorite was their self-titled. Uh, Revolution Spring takes that now. It it is knocked self-titled out of there. But uh, I still really have a soft stop for self-title. Like, totally different. I, I get it. It's totally different. But this is uh, one where... And I don't know if putting it under a name, I don't think this is an example of that, because Suicide Machines got attention with uh, the first two records, but I don't know if they were ever big enough where, like, you know, the the general public had preconceived notions of them. Like, you know, I I guess maybe the name is a bit, you know what I mean? Like, I guess if you played it for some, like me, I don't know. I I guess not really, because they're, including at that time, you know, in the year, like, 2000, um, you know, there's other bands with with more ridiculous names on the radio and stuff. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know if Suicide Machines was uh, what deterred people. Because, I mean, they they did still sell a lot of records. Like, I mean, they they did actually. I don't know that they ever went gold. But, like, they did sell a lot of albums. Like, I think more albums than people realize. Like, even I sometimes don't realize how big uh, the Suicide Machines are. I mean, funny enough, I, I remember seeing them in 2015 and buying a, a shirt at their, uh, show, and I just remember, like, every time I wore it around, actually, still, I still have it, and anytime I wear it, I, I would say almost every time I get one person who compliments it, and, I mean, unless they're just fucking weirdos who see someone wearing a shirt that says Suicide Machines, and they're just like, that's cool, I mean, I assume they know, <laughs> they know that, uh, you know, they're the band, and, uh, I'm just always, it always surprises me. Not that I thought like they were an unknown band or anything like that, but like I'm just I think I get I've gotten more compliments on my suicide machine shirt than any other shirt I've ever worn. Like I, I think more people have like like rad shirt, you know, to that. And uh, you know, very very cool, I would say. I mean they're they're one of my favorite ska bands. But on this one, you know, obviously no Scott. And funny enough, I mean, one of the few times you'll probably hear someone uh, comparing the Suicide Machines to the Get Up Kids. But this album having that Beatles influence, you know, another one where bringing out your Beatles influence kind of, you know, fucked up your career. Um, You know, definitely another one where, I mean, there's tons of bands who obviously rip off the Beatles or influenced by them. But there's certain genres, I think, where if you start to sound like them it's it's a no-no and i would say anything in like the punk realm would uh would be that you know there's uh and i, I got to i mean i'm not i don't even remember the last time i listened to them now i mean they've not released anything good and i don't know how long but i remember being a really big panic at the disco fan when i was younger and loving the fir- and actually i still stand by the fir- the first record and uh, pretty odd coming out afterwards and just, I mean, it's sounding like a straight up Beatles ripoff, not liking it at the time where now in retrospect I go back and I and I actually, and I haven't listened to it in years, but anytime I put it on, I'll periodically put it on. I'll go years out listening to it and then I'll like put it on once or twice, kind of like with their first record. I'll go years and then just kind of randomly listen to it. It's like, all right, I still like this. Like, it's still pretty good. And, uh, you know, now I listen to it and I actually like it quite a bit where I'm like that Beatles influence is cool. But at the time, I'm like, that's another one where it's like you didn't you had like no Beatles influence on your first record. And then the next one, you're just like fucking ripping them off. You know, it's like, I I don't know about this. You know, a lot of I'll do an episode of that. Just bands who ripped off the Beatles randomly on an album like no, no sign of them before that record. But all of a sudden they just go all in with the Beatles on one record. And, uh, you know. I, I, it's funny, though, Suicide Machines, because of all the bands, though, to kind of take a Beatlesy direction, like, you know, they're, a, they're quite an interesting one. But, uh, you know, again, I like this record. I don't think you're ever going to hear them play this stuff live. I really don't think they play anything. I don't even think they play, like, sometimes I don't mind. Like, I don't think they play anything off this record live. It's not... It's not something that, uh, you know, like I think the general consensus in the band, and obviously the only one uh, left from that era is uh, Jason Navarro, you know, but I, I know he's not a big fan. I don't know what the other dudes think, but, uh, yeah, I know he's not a big fan. Obviously he doesn't play this stuff. And I, th- I think there's, you know, though, that that's another one where I got to say, like it's a record that I really like, and I would actually be stoked to hear some of those songs live. But I also get it because they're just such a fast-paced, like, band. Like if you go see them live, I mean, it's just – it's, it's movement the entire time. Like, you know, it, that's what they do. Like, that's what they do best. I saw them open for the descendants a few years ago and it's like, my God, like just so much energy. Like Jason is such a great frontman too. Like he's just insane jumping in the crowd, like going crazy. Like they're a band who plays, you know, 15 songs in 30 minutes, kind of, you know, kind of like the Ramones. And I do think that, you know, as much as I love this record, most of these songs if they pulled out live would just kind of fuck up the flow of it. You know what I mean? Like just to be honest, like the flow of the set would probably get messed up throwing those songs in. Like I would love to hear sometimes I don't mind, but I don't know where you put that in the set. You know, you definitely don't open with it. You definitely don't close with it. And like, I don't know. I think anywhere you put it, like I, I just don't know where that would work, you know. So it's like pardon me, i would like to hear those songs, but I'm also like, hey, I get it. You know, like I'm not mad. I'm not really mad that they don't play the songs. But uh, next one, you know, which uh, kind of goes with Suicide Machines because the singer of this next man is the reason that I started listening to Suicide Machines because he told me to go listen to them. But uh, Hawthorne Heights and uh, my boy JT Woodruff, shout out to him telling me to uh, go listen to them. He told me to start with the first two records. Then he told me to listen to the third record. And he was kind of the same way. I mean, he, I remember telling him like when I, after I listened to it, like I'm like right away like, holy shit, dude, like that was different. And uh, I want to say he's a fan of it. I don't think he hates it. I I think he likes that record, too. But he's like, yeah, like, that's different, right? You know? And, uh, I mean, also, how funny. I mean, with Sometimes I Don't Mind, if you don't know that record. Also, like, for the Suicide Machines, it's a song about a dog. You know? It's kind of funny. Like, the opening song is about a dog. And it's like, and it sounds totally, it sounds very 90s, too. But in a different way, you know, like, like, because really, the Suicide Machines, even though obviously, you know, kind of get associated with the 90s, that's when they started, I don't feel like they sound, like, besides the fact that Ska was big in the 90s, they don't sound super definitive, I think, of an era. Like, you know, and part of it, I think, is not having those horn section, where, like, I, I feel like it makes it a little more timeless and less of a, of a like, you know, third wave Ska kind of sounding band, but... You know, on that on that song, I do think like the guitar effects and stuff make me think of like the late the like mid to late nineties. Like I, like I, it really does. Like in mid to late nineties, like radio, you know, and kinda kinda like not soft rock, but even kind of cranberries y kind of stuff. Like, you know, not bad, just different for the suicide machines, not what you would expect. But uh you know but I also gotta say, how great how great songwriting though you have a song like that, so catchy. And then I remember the first time listening and then realizing it's about a dog at the end. And it's like, you know what, it is clever, but it's like it also kind of interesting, you know, being like the album opener and stuff. But anyway, getting back to Hawthorne Heights, um, you know, and J- JT turning me on to them. Um, you know, dude's always turn me on to good shit. But Fragile Future, you know, their, uh, their, their third album, their first one after their uh, unclean vocalist and guitar player Casey Calvert passed away. And, uh, I mean, just such a sad, you know... Such a sad, unexpected death, including, it's like, those dudes are not partiers. You know what I mean? Like, it, it was one of those things, too, where, like, I think some people looked at it like, like, oh, he and he did. Like, I think accidentally overdosed on, like, some kind of, like, prescription medicine. But, like, people kind of looked at it because, you know, he was a young dude. And it's like, oh, they must be partying and stuff. It's like half that band is straight edge. Like, half those band, half those dudes don't party at all. Like, they're, they're just, you know, clean dudes, you know, really, really good guys And I mean, just so, so sad and unexpected. You know what I mean? Because it is. It's like, it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, there's certain guys where it's like, yeah, they were partying all the time. And it's like, maybe you didn't see them, you know, joining the 27 Club or whatever. But it's like, you weren't super surprised, you know. But I think this album, I mean, for one, their first two records just being so big. And I mean, them being such a, you know, popular band, I think at the time... I'm pretty sure the best-selling victory records band. I don't know if they still are. They may, they might still even be, even if they're not, they still have to be one of the best-selling uh, bands ever on victory records. But, uh, you know, I mean, a lot riding on their uh, third record. I mean, even even before the death of Casey. I mean, obviously, you know, having that next follow-up, everyone was kind of waiting for it. And then that happening, you know, I mean, the pressure for one, and also, also credit to them for even, like, moving on and, you know, putting out a new record but you know I think it was extremely hard and what I appreciate too because like I, I'm sure it's hard to sing about but I mean they they you know there's a lot of songs on there that are you know very brutally honest lyrically I mean like just talking you know obviously are dealing and talking about Casey and you know like his death and everything and they're put in a in a part where a position where like their sound is kind of forced to change you know they didn't want to add a, a another member after that and you know, they are they had three guitarists, so I mean at that point, you know, they still had two guitarists, but you know, Casey screamed on those obviously a big element of the band, you know, and a big part of their sound. And uh, you know, once that was gone, you know, and, and this is why I think it slept on. I think they did a good job at doing elements where like, you know, they would you know, obviously you couldn't it's not the same thing as like, you know, someone screaming and having unclean vocals but they added different elements to the, I think, songs where it made it heavier, you know, in ways where it's like, all right, well, it's like we're not we're not doing heavy things so much vocally, but it's like musically we are. And I, I think they did really well at that, you know. This is another one where I think within more recent years I see people coming around to it and liking it more. But, you know, it was it's not an album that's left field per se. Like I don't, I, they didn't really change their sound that drastically, including when you compare them to like the Suicide Machines or the Get Up Kids with, uh, you know, like the last two examples there. You know, I don't think it changed that much. I mean, the biggest thing was obviously no more unclean vocals, but it's like they were still, you know, pretty heavy and guitar driven and everything. There's still breakdowns and stuff. But I think at the same time, I think what you did see, which is what I think you would see with a lot of bands who, you know, including of that era where if you took out those unclean vocals, kind of were more of a pop punk band, you know, or pop rock band even who, you know, just now don't have the screaming. And like I think on the Fragile Future, you know, you you kind of do that where it's like they didn't change it that much when you take that out instead of, you know, I don't want to call them screamo. You know, but it's like you you now kind of take it from that element, you know, bands like that that you would put in there like Silverstein's and, uh, you know, and Aiden's and different things like that. And uh, now you're kind of more if you take that out now, it's like now you sound more kind of like a pop punk pop or like pop rock band, you know. But I think I think they sound great that way, like this record and the next one, Skeletons, which I think is another one that is uh, pretty slept on. But once again, I think I do see people coming around to it more now, though, like like I've seen in the past few years, I noticed they play the songs more live like like they have went back and it's like now they're playing stuff, off, which I love to see because I love those records for a long time. You know, they did play more of like greatest hit sets and would play stuff more off like the first two records and stuff. And now I see them play more shit off like Fragile Future and uh, Skeletons. Because I think a lot more people have, they've also went and listened to them. I mean, the the other thing here which I want to get to on why I think this one was slept on was it also just wasn't given the same amount of marketing. Like Victory Records, yes, I mean, they've fucked over almost every band that's ever worked with them. You know, most people don't have a lot of good things to say about Victory Records. Like, that's just the truth. But one thing that I think every band on that label will tell you, anyone who's ever paid due attention attention to them will tell you, they know how to market music. They really do. They know how to sell records. They know how to get the word out there. They're really, really good at that. You cannot take that away from them. You may not like... You may not be a fan of the music and the genre, that you know, the stuff that they release, you may not be a fan of them because, once again, you know, they were not greatest to their bands, but which you have to give them credit for, they knew how to market things. Whole reason why I know, you know, why I knew all those victory bands back in the day, why I knew Hawthorne Heights is Take Back Sunday and Bayside and Silverstein and Aiden and uh, the audition and, you know, so and student Rick way earlier, you know, and uh, just all, all those different snap case, you know, all, all the different bands. And it's because they know how to market, you know, they absolutely knew how to market, you know, in a lot of ways, too, back in the back in the day, you know, where things have changed now. But, you know, we're very good with the compilations and I mean, getting stuff, including like on Fuse. And, uh, you know, just really getting the word out there on things, having the sampler discs in all their albums. So you go buy one one victory album and then you get a sampler of all these other victory bands like they knew what they were doing. And they were very good, I think, at promoting the first two Hawthorne Height records. And uh, then they obviously they got in that lawsuit with Hawthorne Heights. And, you know, they, they put they still put out Fragile Future. And I think it was kind of weird because I think I think Hawthorne Heights was kind of trying to get out of their uh out of their record deal with, with victory because victory was like withholding royalties and, you know, just doing the shady shit that victory records does, you know, a lot of different things where if you look, you go, yeah, I can't blame them for not wanting to be on that label. They did not win the lawsuit. And I think it cost the band a lot of money financially and they were still on the label And, you know, obviously the label still put it out and whatnot, but I don't think it was, it did not get the same kind of promotion and advertisement that it probably should have gotten. You know, it should have been marketed more. It should have been pushed more. There's songs on there that should have been huge. Like, you know, I I think once again, going back to that where it's like taking out those unclean vocals, they're more like a pop punk band. And I think like Rescue Me is a great pop punk song. Like that's a good song for, you know. Radio like that's a catchy song somewhere in between. That's another one that uh, I think would have worked really well, you know, and they got and they got kind of pushed, you know, they had music videos. Uh, you know, you've, I've heard those songs on the radio. Hell, I, I remember the top 40 radio station I used to work at. We did have rescue me actually there that was in there, you know, so it's like. You know, back in long before I was there, they obviously put that in rotation, and I, I would always try to sneak it in there when I uh, when I did when I did the music directing part, and uh, you know, it's scheduled music. I would always throw it on in there, but uh, you know, it got some attention, but was not pushed like it should have. And I, I definitely think that probably has to do with the fact that you know, Victory probably wasn't super happy with the lawsuit. And, you know, I don't know sound-wise. I don't know if Victory, want you know, if they were happy that they didn't add a new uh, screamer and third guitarist. Like, you know, Victory may have wanted them to be heavier. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I, I think it could have been – I think it definitely could have been promoted better. And the other thing, too, is this, is there's people who wanted Hawthorne Heights to sound like the first, you know, be a heavier band and have the screaming so when that's not on there, you know, they're not into it. Where there's people who may who maybe weren't into the first, you know, the the unclean vocals and the band kind of on that heavier side, where they actually probably really would have liked Fragile Future and uh, same with skeletons, probably would have liked those records. Like if they're fans of like pop punk or pop rock and just weren't really fans of like, you know, the heavier stuff of Silence and Black and White If Only Are Lonely, like I think they actually really would have liked this. But it goes back to, you know, marketing in a different way. I mean, this isn't this isn't anyone's fault, but but basically, you know, Hawthorne Heights had quite a bit of popularity at that point. But that that means that certain people wanted them to sound a certain way. And there's other people who thought they sounded a certain way and just expected that, you know, just went, oh, well, Hawthorne Heights sounds like this. Where in actuality, it's like, no, like, listen to Rescue Me. Like, it's, you know, it's more of this instead of that. And it works really, really well. Like, you know, that that band can write really catchy songs. They're very, very good at that. And, uh, and I think they've been good, too. Like, they're another one where I think they'll f- they've kind of found a good place where, like, you know, they – and obviously they have added uh, Mark McMillan, who uh, we've had on the show, former guest of the show. Very, very good dude. Um, just all those guys in that band, I can't say good enough stuff about. Like Like, seriously, like, if there is a band who you should model – like, if you're in a band – you should be like Hawthorne Heights, like the way they treat their fans, the way they run their shit, like just how DIY they are. For a band who's had as much success as they've had, I, there's few bands who I, I know who are as DIY as them, like really are really good at that, are very creative people. I can't say enough good shit about them. I, mean, there's, I don't think you really find people out there who can say anything bad about them. Whether you like, whether or not you like their music, like you can't you just can't say anything bad about them. They're all good fucking people. Like, everyone in that camp is just good people. And, uh, you know, I, I think they're uh, all very, very good dudes. But, yeah, Mark now, Mark does do unclean vocals. So, I mean, they have brought that back. They have brought that element back. But, you know, I think they've also kind of continued on where it's like there are songs, not even full albums, but it's like they even do that with songs where it's like, we don't need to have screaming in every song. Sometimes they do have stuff that, that, you know, does kind of go back more to that like fragile future sound where it's like, you know, it it is more of it is more of this instead of, you know, the kind of I don't I, I don't like the term screamo. I mean obviously emo is, is the other one, but I, I hate that term as well, you know. Which I also give them credit though. I, I think they've leaned into that more because, you know, people kinda used to give them shit for that and I think now they lean into it in a way where it's like it's funny I think they've handled it they've handled it quite well including the fact that they just sell a shirt that just says emo on it and uh, have sold shit tons of those shirts and I think if anyone deserves to uh, make money off a shirt that says emo I think it's Hawthorne Heights I I think that is well deserved money but uh, yeah I I, I think they're a band who who I think after those records kind of found a nice in between two where like you know kind of kind of sound like fragile future and skeletons but kind of also added back that uh kind of harder edge of the first two records you know and once again not super left field i don't i don't think that fragile future was super left field i just don't think it's what people were expecting you know it's it's not what they wanted at the time they wanted they did kind of want you know ohio is for lovers part 2 you know they i think they did kind of want things like that and you know you weren't you weren't getting that you know the case he was no longer in the band you know that that changed things up and you know but once again they didn't put something bad out i mean the 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 record sounds great you know the production's really good i love the Almart work album work for it is uh, great and uh yeah i mean I, I think this is one i think a lot of fans have come around to it and uh, i also think there are people who will tell you aren't aren't huge Hawthorne Heights fans, but have, like I was saying, like have heard that album and are like, oh no, like I like that. Like I do like that album. Like maybe they're not super into the band, but that one they can get into, you know. Uh next up, another one. And I won't let I won't go too far on this, but I mean Green Day, you know, uh obviously me and Kyle talked about Insomniac a lot and how underrated that one is. But I feel like people have come around to that. That one is a, a big fan favorite. Warning, though, is a very slept-on record, I would say. It's probably their most slept-on record. Like, you know, it, I mean, Nimrod, Insomniac, Warning, all very, very underrated, don't get enough attention. But Warning, even now, like, I think is still probably their, their, like, far from their best-selling record. Like, has just not sold much at all. And uh, just very you know, it's another one. They kind of did different shit. You know, Nimrod, they kind of played around and had a couple, you know, they would do different genres and kind of play around with songs more. It wasn't just a straight-up punk record. But Warning, they went even further that way. I mean, there are songs on there that just aren't really punk at all. You know, you wouldn't even label them that. And they're great songs, you know, they're, they're different, you know, they're, uh, and they're still, but Green Day, the other thing I like about it though is, it is still Green Day, like the chord progressions in it, the lyrics, like all that stuff, like, I still feel like it's a green day record. Like, you know, it still very much sounds like an album that was written by Billy, you know, Mike and, and Trey. Like one hundred percent. You know, it doesn't sound so different in that way, but you know, they they definitely kind of went like they did with Nimrod, where they were playing around with different things. And on this one, they really went that way. I, I also think it's like their most replacements influenced album. You know, I think I think uh the whole band, I mean, hugely influenced by the replacements. Um, you know, and, and throughout their entire career. But I think if there's a record where they specifically sound most like them and definitely sound like they were listening to them, I think it was on warning. Um, I think Church on Sunday sounds like it could have been written by Paul Westerberg, and including, like, Paul Westerberg's solo career. Like, I could hear that as a Paul solo song. Like, I would love to hear him uh, cover that, like, totally. Like, the lyrics, you know, kind of the cleverness of it, like, just every everything about it I really, really like. And uh I definitely it because I'm you know I'm such a big replacements fan that I'm like, fuck yeah, like I like that it's kind of on the nose there where it's like you can you can definitely hear that uh influence in there more than uh more than ever. And I think they're also, you know, they were all around age thirty at that point. You know, this was this was them not obviously not old, but like, you know, they were getting older. Like Dookie at that point had been out for which is still funny to think, I guess, only Only maybe six, six years, six years, I believe. Yeah, 94. And uh, Warning came out in 2000. I, I, you know, I guess not as, uh, not as long as I thought, actually. But still, you know, that album was six years old. It it wasn't that, you know, they were older now. And, uh, you know, kind of a, a more mature sound on this one. You know, I I think, I think it's also just that of like getting older, having different influences and also not wanting to keep, you know, we don't want to just play, you know, three chord punk. But once again, what I like is they didn't play three chord punk, but they kind of kept the three chord simplicity. You know, like it's very much a Green Day record, but in a different in a different way. You know, and and they do that well. I mean, even even on like the last like their last record, like I don't love it, uh, Father of All Motherfuckers, but I did uh, really just recently kind of start listening to uh, to the whole thing, and you know, I don't love it, but there's there are songs on it that I I like I like uh, enough, and I'm like. It is good because it's like it's still Green Day, but it's Green Day kind of doing more of just like straight up rock and roll. And they've done that throughout their careers where it's like this song's kind of green. You know, it's kind of folksy, but it's like, you know, it's Green Day or it's, you know, an acoustic ballad. But, you know, Green Day. And, uh, you know, I think they do that well where sometimes they'll do different shit. But it's still, you know, it's still in that vein where it's not this super left field like what the fuck are they doing? It's like, oh, no, like like I like this. Like it's different. But it's like I I like it, you know. Same a lot of their side projects like Foxborough Hot Tubs or the Network, you know. Allegedly, I know I know. Uh, obviously, they're not the Network, but uh, you know, if they were the Network, <laughs> which I know they're working on some stuff now, which is uh, pretty cool. I'm excited for that. Uh, I, and it's funny because I I had not listened to the Network in a while in in years. And uh, then I saw they were talking about releasing new stuff, and then I like thought about them. And I'm like, oh yeah, like that, like that's really good stuff. I really like that record. Uh, if you've never listened to it, go check out the the uh, network. They only have one album, I believe. There's only one album out, but uh, really, really good stuff. It's not Green Day, though. Uh, allegedly, it, it's not. It's definitely not Green Day in that band. It is not them and masks. One hundred, one hundred percent. But, uh, but yeah, warning, warning is not your traditional Green Day record, but I don't think that makes it bad, but still very much slept on. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I've heard the band say that they hate it, but I don't think they think it's their best work ever. And like live, like, I mean, you, you hear like warning, you might hear minority live, but uh, that's about it. They don't play a whole lot, Um, you know, and, and it's funny on here because they do just like they did on Insomniac, which me and Kyle were talking about how how weird it kind of felt. But uh, having one of your singles be the album closer, Macy's Day Parade, which a great closer, one of my favorite Green Day album closers. Um, absolutely. And uh, I think such a great and really minor single was not – it was probably one of their least successful singles, I would say. Um, you know, you really don't hear that one played at all. You know, I mean, they they did a music video for it and everything, but that's another one. You really don't see that get airplay either. But a really good song, but you know it's always it's always just odd to me that it's like the album closer is a single, you know that's just so odd, but uh, a great song, just a just kind of but another one where it's like and it's an acoustic song, but it's not it's not like good riddance, you know what I mean? like they did the acoustic thing again, but what I like is that it they did it like rehashing away like, oh, people like that, so we did another one like it. It's like the only thing I think that song has in common with uh good riddance is that it they're, it's on acoustic guitar. I mean, also, obviously, the uh, drums and bass come in, but it's still a pretty acoustic song, you know. But uh, I I think besides the acoustic guitar, not a whole lot of uh, similarities to Good Riddance. And, uh, I mean, I like that because, they, again, they could have tried doing that as well, you know. They could have went – because, really, at this point, the only thing people forget is, like, Warning didn't sell all that great, and had American Idiot not sold well – I mean, I don't know where the band would have been. I mean, I don't know if that would have been the end of them or what, but, like, commercially, they were not the band from, you know, six years prior. You know, they were not Dookie. Dookie was not the the big thing anymore. They were not, you know, they were still kind of playing arenas, but, like, you know, I don't I don't know that they were filling them. And, like, even when they were, you know, like, with, like, the Pop Disaster Tour, like, you know, they were playing Blink-182 who, at the time, were, you know, doing a lot bigger, you know, commercially, you know, and were selling a lot more tickets than Green Day. But, uh, you know... They they could have, I think, at some point been like, oh, you know, like we got to just fucking do something, you know, to, to sell records. And it's like, yeah, maybe they could have shit out, you know, Good Riddance Part 2, you know, like like just maybe the whole record didn't sound like that. But they know if they throw that acoustic ballad on there, like it will sell records. But it's like they they really didn't do that on here. You know, they just ex- it's, it's again, it's them not doing the thing that could probably like. And it's funny to say, because obviously they're a huge band, but it's like, you know. They're, they do things that, you know, because you, even Good Riddance, as big as it is now at the time, probably wasn't the way to go. Like that that probably wasn't the best idea. That's not the way you would go if you were like if you were Green Day and you were trying to sell records, you would try to write like when I come around part two. You know, obviously it worked for them when they when they went the acoustic ballad route. But like you don't expect that when you do it. You know, that that just ended up happening. You know, it was kind of a happy accident. You know, it wasn't it wasn't forced. And that's kinda of what I like about them is that a lot of their a lot of their stuff isn't forced. It just comes out good, but they didn't you know, they didn't do the move of same with Insomniac. It's Dookie with kind of better production and stuff, but it's still not them just rewriting entirely. You know, it, it has a similar sound, but it's not it's not just the same record again, you know. It it's different enough. Actually, you know, if you listen to our podcast, you know, Kyle uh, Kyle moved me on this, but I, I think it's even better than Dookie now. Um you know but the, but still they they could have went a different route on Insomniac and probably sold more records you know that it's just the it's just a fact with them that i respect you know obviously a huge band but uh not not doing the like blink 182 i love blink 182 but i mean look at like they they kind of went the safe route in that way and i'm not shitting on them that way i love to take off your pants and jacket but like they didn't go some insane like whenever the state got big they didn't have this reaction of you know, we have to write on a wire or, you know, like the self-titled Suicide Machines record. They, they didn't go that way. It's like instead they're like, no, like this is this makes sense. This is logical. This is the next logical step. You know, this would be the next logical move, you know. And, and if you go that route, I think it ends up working out more, you know and I mean. And really, I mean, Green Day is just as big as Blink-182, but Blink-182 is probably still sold more records for that reason. You know, that they kind of, I think, went more of that route of like this is a more logical step. You know, where Green Day, I think, kind of went more a lot of times. Even with that stuff, I mean, doing the trilogy, you know what I mean? It's like a, and a lot of people don't love it. I, you know, really, I was listening to Uno recently. Uno's really good. This is my consensus. Uno's a pretty good record. And if you took Uno and then took a few songs off Dose and Trey, you would you would have a pretty solid record. Like one really solid record, but you don't need three. But again, like, you know, still. That's kind of a band where it's like, I don't know, I kind of respect that. Because I'm like, I, I don't know that that was the way to go commercially. That's probably not commercially the way to release three albums like that. Like, that may not have been the way to go. But that's what they wanted to do, you know. So, I mean, I I can respect that about them. And I think that's what they did on Warning. And, uh, you know, still pretty slept on, I would say. Still still not one that gets mentioned a lot when people are talking about their favorite Green Day records. And uh definitely should be. And uh, speaking of Blink-182... Getting on here with uh, Neighborhoods, a uh, album very, very polarizing. I would still say ne- – I don't think time has really changed anyone. I, I think it's been about a decade, and I feel like if you like this album when it came out, you still do. If you didn't like it, you, you still don't like it. But my thing is, this is one of those ones where, well, like I was talking about earlier, after a while, your expectations of something are going to be so high they can never be met. And I think that's the thing with Neighborhoods. This album – If you just take the album for the songs and you just listen to them, I think they're good songs. I think it's a good album. Do I think that it's as good as what they did before they broke up? No, absolutely not. It's most there's a few good songs on there that like like after midnight's one where I do think that's one of their strongest singles. That is one of my favorite. Like we're talking singles, I think that's a great single. I think that's a great that's a great song. It's kind of. Like to me, and I've I I've heard other people say this. Like, had they not broken up after self-titled, I think after Midnight is an example of a song we probably would have heard on the next album. You know, had there had there not been what have that been? I think eight years in between. You know, I mean, and really, I mean, that's it's funny when you think about it. That's not. I mean, it is long for a time in between albums, but it's like there's so many bands who, if you look, they they went decades in-between albums. So, I mean, eight, eight years isn't crazy, but it is enough, and they did progress. You know, obviously, Mark went, Mark and Travis, plus 44, and then Tom over into Angels and Airwaves. You know, they were doing different things, obviously, much more mature sounds than, you know, what they were doing, like, with Enema of the State and whatnot. But, uh you know, I think, like, After Midnight was kind of one where it's like, that would probably be, like, in continuation, where the other stuff, like, like, here's the thing with the re- with the record. It definitely sounds like if if you took Angels and Airwaves and plus 44 and you put them together, you know, and it's funny, because in a way, you would say it was Blink-182, but it, it's not, it's kind of a different, it's kind of a different thing, I think you get songs like Ghost on the Dance Floor, and, uh, you know, even like, eh, like, even kind of like Up All Night, like, I mean, I know that riff was written pre-breakup, but it's like, even that song, like, some of the, some of the, like, added effects and stuff on there, it's like, it's it is Blink Blink-Wing, but it's like it it does have the mark of of Angels and Airwaves in it, you know, obvi- which is obviously going to happen, you know. That was, and same with Plus Forty Four, obviously there's songs, you know, including some Mark songs. Where you're like, oh yeah, that totally could have been a Plus Forty Four song, you know. And who knows, maybe it almost was, you know. But uh, not not a bad record, I don't think. I think it also leaves a bad taste in people's mouths that it was record they, they all recorded separately. You know, I, I think that really left a bad taste in people's mouths. And I, I think it would have been, I mean, Dogs Eating Dogs they did together in a studio, and that was really good. I mean that's another I love I love that EP. It's a great EP. And uh you know, I, I think that was also a testament where yeah, look at they they do I think most people do. If you're you're gonna work better if you're working in the same room together. Like I just think that's the case but i don't like once again like neighborhoods probably would have been better if they did that but i don't think it's a bad record that's kind of my stress with the slept on records my my thing with these are these are records that don't get enough credit and they deserve more credit you know like they're not shit records they're just you know and it doesn't even mean they're their greatest records like i like i'm saying this isn't this isn't on par with dude ranch this isn't even on par with self title but this isn't a bad record like these songs aren't really bad there's a few songs that i would say Maybe I would cut out, but even then, you would still have a full length record. Like even if, even if you shaved off like two or three songs, you would still have a full length record, a full length records worth of uh, you know good songs. And uh, yeah, you know, like like I think there's just certain things like they didn't record together and people's expectations too. I mean, because I mean, look at uh, the self title record was not not left field, but it was just very mature for them. Ended up being successful. Like ended up being a lot of people's favorite record of theirs. And I think there was just so much fanfare, people were like, you know, just riding on it, so many people's favorite bands, you know, definitely still one of my favorite bands to this day. And I just think that that after a while, no matter what you were gonna put out, you're ju- it's just not gonna it's not gonna fulfill that. It's either and the other thing is that you could either come out with something that sounds too much like, oh, they're just trying to rewrite this song, or then it's like, oh, this doesn't sound like them at all. And, you know, I think this album meets somewhere in between. I, I think it definitely has the Angels and Airwaves and Plus 44 marks on it. You can hear you can hear those bands on it. But, I mean, at its core, it's, I still think it is a Blink-182 record. I mean, there's songs on there like After Midnight. And uh, Heart's All Gone is another one where it's like I think that is a great song. You know, that has – that's one of their fastest songs. And I, I think that one – that one has like a Plus 44 kind of vibe to it as well. But, you know, like, there's songs on there where I go, I, I think they fit perfectly in the catalog, you know. And the members are all kind of different. I think Mark might be the only one who still says positive things about it. Uh, I, even a few years after releasing it, I think Tom and Travis both kind of said, like, it's it's not, like, our best. Like, we, we probably should have been working together and stuff. I think it was Mark who was kind of defending it more. It's like, there's some good songs on there. But I know even now, actually, they don't really play many songs. I think they play like Up All Night Live, but I don't even know that they've ever played anything else with Matt Skiba in the band. I don't know that he's ever played on any other neighborhood songs, which is too bad because, once again, I think After Midnight, an amazing – like, I think that's such a great single of theirs. I, I think that's one that – because it's also not played to death. You know, they're – like, I, I got to admit, there's certain songs like I Miss You and all the small things stuff where it's like – you just heard them too many times. Like, I skip them. Like, I, I just do. If I'm listening, I'm in the state almost every time I skip all the small things. And uh, same with self Title. I'll listen to the whole thing. But when I hit I Miss You, I'll normally turn it off just because I've heard them so much. They're not bad songs. I'm not shitting on them. I've just heard them too many times. I'm like, I, I don't need to hear this. Like, I'll, I'll I'll skip this one this time. Another one with this record, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it would make it any less slept on. But I don't think it got as much like promotion. Um, I, I have heard them talk about this where like I believe they're on Interscope for this one and like the rock department at that point was basically like did, like it almost was non-existent. And uh it was the same with Jimmy Eat World. I mean they they put out uh, invented and they're on the same label and they put that out like a year before neighborhoods and uh kind of same thing where it's like there really wasn't like there was no real A&R team behind it. There was no real, like, marketing or promotion. And uh, this one kind of hit it too. But it's also, like, I look at that and I go, like, I think Blink-182 are big enough where it's like they may have just been able to even self-release that. I was almost like you know like and they did with dogs eating dogs and it made sense it's like you guys are so big it's like you already have so many eyes and there's so much like already on you that's like i don't know how much a major label can do for you and you know in the 2010s like i don't know what that really would have did for them you know i don't know it really did much i mean because they were on it and you know i don't i don't think it did anything major you hear those songs on the radio too they got some some airplay but you know, that's another one where it's like, you know, at this point, you don't really, you know what I mean? Like, they're, if they're playing blink 182 they're playing, like, current singles. They're playing stuff off, like, Enema and Take Off Your Pants and Self-Title. Like, you really don't hear Up All Night or After Midnight, you know, really being played much anymore. And, uh, you know, not not a bad record. Once again, not not their greatest, but not bad. I, I think it gets slept on by a lot of people where if you if you just realize that it's not going to be, You know, it's them a little more grown up, and it's in a lot of ways, it's not the same band who wrote, you know, your favorite record when they were, you know, in their 20s, you know, that they're now like dudes who, you know, during neighborhoods were all like late 30s maybe early 40s even i no I, I think they were all like late 30s at that point but all late 30s had been married and had kids and shit like not the same you know what i mean like they just changed and mark and tom weren't like you know the you know they weren't like hanging out every day and weren't like the same best friends they once were you know it's just a different dynamic and if you go in kind of realizing that it's not a bad record you know and again few songs that i would actually say you know, I, I went back and listened to it. You know, before I did this podcast, and there were a few songs that, like back back when it came out, like I was like, oh, they're not bad. And it's like now I'm like, yeah, like I, I get it. Like a few of those, I'm like, yeah, we could probably do without them. But yeah, overall, good record. I think uh, worth worth spinning from time to time. You know, definitely worth uh, putting on here and there. And uh, moving on, a another one here, the Atari's Welcome the Night. I mean, talk about a slept on record one of the ones that really like when i was even thinking of this episode this was probably the first one that came to mind um this is this album i mean and i remember i remember uh seeing the music video for not capable of love for the first time like i was i was scrolling through itunes way back in the day like 2007 when this album came out and uh the, the i saw the video on there and i didn't even know they were putting out a new record which is also kind of kind of goes into part of why this is uh you know just never got the attention you know not very very uh, well promoted but like I saw it was on there I saw there's a music video and I'm like and the, the album had already been out I think for a couple months but I'm like oh they have a they have a new album now at that point I'd never I never uh, even owned an Atari's record but obviously I knew boys this summer and in this diary like you know so long a story was pretty big and I knew those songs so, I mean I, I, I liked them enough but I remember like putting it out I'm like I had to check I'm like is that the same lead singer like Chris Rowe looks so different the song sounded so different like there was really a second where I was almost like is this the same band like it was just so it just caught you off guard and then you like look at that even like the album art's very different you know I mean the name welcome the night like everything about it is just so different and it wasn't in a bad way, though. I went out and ended up being the first... Welcome Night was the first Atari's record that I ever bought, actually. I mean, not the first one I heard, but the first one that I went out and actually bought. And uh, I went and got it. And, I mean, I got to say, like, not capable of love. I like that enough. But, like, the rest of it I don't think I really got at the time. It it wasn't... And it didn't turn me off the band. Like, I still, you know, I still like the uh, singles and whatnot, but... Just kind of kind was like, yeah, whatever. I didn't, I didn't really listen to that album all that much. You know, from time to time, they would come off, come on and uh, shuffle and I uh, would listen to it, but not really something that I would go on my way to listen to. And, uh, you know, like a lot of other people, it took me years. But then I would go back and probably I, I'd say like 2011, 2012 – I think I started listening to it again. I remember getting on vinyl really cheap, which it's a very rare record, but I found it in a clearance bin at a record theater. Shout out to them and rest in peace in uh, Buffalo. And uh, th- I mean, it was like, I think $8 maybe on, uh, on vinyl and like double LP too, I think. If I if I remember correctly, I still have it and I, I love it. I, it's signed by Chris Rowe. It's uh I forget what he wrote. Oh, he wrote New Year's Day because he played it for me. I asked him to play New Year's Day on uh, Twitter, and he uh, played it for me at the show that night and uh, dedicated it to me. So then afterwards, and I brought it out. I'm like like you know you you played the song on Welcome the Night, now I got to sign my uh, record. And uh, you know he he wrote he wrote New Year's Day on it, and I think he wrote a nice little sweet note underneath. Very very good guy, but uh. And that was a good show he was opening for MXPX and 5 Iron Frenzy that that was a that was a great show he just played acoustic but it was great to hear New Year's Day acoustic that was really really cool but uh yeah anyway you know i kind of picked it up just cuz it was cheap and you know the, the nice thing about vinyl is it makes you kind of sit there and listen to a record front to back and uh you know i listened to it again i'm like this is not a bad record like this is a really good record and you start realizing too cuz here's the other thing 2011, 2012, like this is this is you know maybe five years after it was released, that's a sound that a lot of bands at that time were kind of doing, and even in like that like there are a lot of bands who kind of got you know categorized as pop punk, who kind of were doing what the Ataris are doing five years earlier on Welcome the Night. I mean, really, an album ahead of its time. Like I, I think a lot of people will tell you that too. Like it's a sound that at the time. Didn't sell very well. It really it hurt the Atari's career really, really bad. I mean, it really, like, and I don't know that he would want to talk about it. But like, if I ever talked to, I would love to interview Chris Rowe, And I would like to talk about like the impact of Welcome to Night. And I know he's a big fan of it. Still, big proponent of the uh, of the album. Still very, very proud of it. But uh, you know, it. I think he would have to tell you as well. It did it did him no favors for his career at all. I mean this this album tanked the ataris and really really hurt them like really badly and uh but you but you know a few years later i was a little older i listened and i I realized that i'm like it's not it doesn't sound like the ataris at all it doesn't sound like an ataris record including coming off so long astoria like you know having that more pop punk polished like pop punk sound to then being like see people forget that too their lineup was fucking huge they had like a six-piece lineup during the Welcome the Night era, like live, they had this huge lineup. And if you don't know, too, the only people from So Long Astoria going on to uh, Welcome the Night was Chris Rowe and then John, their guitar player. He stuck around and he played on that record. But besides that, they had a brand new uh, rhythm section. Uh, their drummer and bass player both left, and then they added uh, they added Angus Cook, I believe his name is uh, on cello, I think, which. He played cello on some of the early uh, Atari releases and uh, some different stuff. He also produced those records. So he, like, always kind of did stuff with them. And I think to this day still does stuff with them. But uh, he was, like, an official member of the band during that era. And they they added a couple different people. And, yeah, I mean, just totally different from a band. You know, they kind of went a different way, too, where, like, so long a story of being more produced and polished. And then on the next record – You know, really fuzzy indie rock kind of shoegazy, like totally different from Boys of Summer or In This Diary. You know, I mean, you know, totally, totally different from that side, but also not super surprising. The difference between them and I think like with the Get Up Kids, like with On A Wire, there's a lot of influences on that record that I don't think you hear on earlier releases. With, With the Ataris, like go back and listen to like Blue Skies. Like, yes, that's a pop punk record. But there's, like, elements in there where you can hear the experimental side, kind of that indie rock set. You know what I mean? Like, those bands that Chris Rowe loved. Because Chris Rowe, like, loved The Replacements and, you know, My Bloody Valentine and The Velvet Underground and, like, Husker Du and Tom Waits. And, like, you know, and he also loved, like, The Descendants and Arches of Loaf and Superchunk and stuff. But, like, you know, he's a guy who's listening to that. He's not, like, listening to, like, Blink-182 and uh you know like good charlotte or like you know like bands that he was touring with at the time like he was listening to totally different shit and you can hear those influences even on their pop punk releases but you know so it's like there are foreshadows of welcome the night i think even on uh even on so long a story and not so much that you would think that don't get me wrong not so much that you would go oh the next album is going to sound like this but i mean there are elements Throughout those albums where it's like, oh, yeah, you can see where, like, Chris is kind of playing with these influences. But, you know, he goes all in with them on Welcome the Night, which I think is amazing. But another one where this is a record that should have been 100% should have been released under a different name. It did it no favors being released under the Ataris. And, uh, I mean, if you go back, I mean, if, if you look at the at the time around this, the label didn't want it to be called, or no, actually, Chris Rowe, I believe, didn't want it to be called an Atari's record. He wanted it to be called something else. But the label wanted it to be under the Atari's name, obviously, because the Atari's, you know, just sold, you know, I, who knows how many records with a uh, Astoria, you know, coming off that, selling all these records, they're like, you know, no, like you can't release a record under a different name, you know, which, which totally, I mean, you do, you do think about it and it's like, okay, that'd be like if Green Day was coming off of their biggest record, like Dookie, and then for Insomniac, they went under a different name, you know, probably not the best idea for your career, probably, probably not smart, but at the same time, in retrospect, I think it would have like like I get it from the label's point of view, where it's like, look at like you guys are successful, name you know, name recognition has a lot to do with it. Like we need you to release it under this name. That's what people know. Like people know the Ataris. Like at, like I get where they're coming from, but now looking back at it, it's such a great album that I think was hurt because it was under a name where once again the preconceived notions of it's gonna sound like this. Same like Hawthorne Heights with Fragile Future, where it's like It's going to sound like this where, no, it actually sounds like this instead. You know, it's something different. And I I think being under a different name with the Ataris, I think, would have ended up doing it uh, really big favors. But at the time, I see why they wouldn't have thought that. I totally get... Why it was released under the Ataris, and then what ended up happening though is it wasn't released by the uh, label anyway Chris Rowe ended up having to i believe- and I think he paid for like the recording and then releasing it and everything, and uh I think basically bankrupt him you know like like really financially hurt him also because you know the return wasn't there it wasn't a big record it did not sell well at all, and uh you know i don't I don't know how uh fast or if ever, you know, that he recouped the money that it took. It's also a really good sounding record. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more production layers to that record than any of the other Atari's albums. It was probably not all that cheap to, you know, get done and record because it's thing. that was also on that cusp of, you know, you really couldn't do this stuff, you know, home recording yet. You know, I I know I interview a lot of people on here where like they're like, yeah, you know, like I really, you know, this record sounds amazing. And I recorded in my bedroom, you know, this was kind of Right before that, you know, you think they were recording in like 2006, 2007. That's a time where that stuff's still kind of new and it's like, yeah, you can do it from home. But it's not, you know, it's, it's it still sounds like you're recording at home. You know, it's not there yet where it is now where it's like you can record shit in your basement. And it doesn't sound like you record in your basement, you know. So he's paying, you know, it's a lot of money probably coming out of pocket. Like all the money that he saw from from the success of Astoria Basically went into that, you know, and just sadly did not work out for him, you know. And I mean even – but I, I will say like I think they did do things like once again with the reaction. It's like they played I think very – I don't think they were playing Boys of Summer for a while. They weren't playing a lot of the old shit. They were basically just playing like stuff off Welcome to Night Live and they were like a six-piece band. It was like – I mean it was something – it's crazy because, like, yes, I bought this album, like, you know, the year it came out. Not not right when it came out, but a few months or so later. But, like, you know, I didn't go see him live or anything like that. But if you go back and you, like – and there are a lot of things I didn't know because at the time I didn't, like, follow, like, Absolute Punk and Punk News and stuff. I didn't find those till years later. But if you go back and, like, read the stuff going on at times, even, like, interviews with Chris Rowe, like, you know, I think he was very much trying to get away from the whole Boys of Summer thing and that side of the band – And, you know, and also another one where, you know, I think around that time he was probably turning about 30, you know, I mean, they were the Ataris were a band at that point for over a decade, you know, so I mean, he'd been doing it for a while, I think he kind of wanted to kind of play more into some of his uh, other influences and do different things. But, you know, Yes, you want it. As an artist, I totally get it. And also, I kind of respect that where, yeah, he didn't go the route of I'm just going to keep, you know, like, oh, I found the key to success. I'm just going to keep shitting out these songs, you know, these like pop punk songs. And it's like and I'm just going to keep selling all these albums. It's like instead he's like, well, no, I want to do this instead. And it's like it was very ambitious. But it's like I do get it where it's like I think at the time really kind of fucking yourselves over. Releasing it under that name, then having to put all that money in, and it just not being the same, you know, just not having the success. Them not playing Boys of Summer when they were, you know, live, you know, playing live, playing mostly new stuff, you know, having like like strings and stuff live, like just really a different thing from what they were, you know, even like three years prior to that, you know. So I I, I do. This is another album where it's like, look at if you only like pop punk and you're not a fan, you know, if you're just so, like, into just, like, the early Ataris, not even so long a story, like, you only like, like, the first couple records and stuff, yeah, I could see where this isn't isn't your, uh, you know, your cup of tea. But, like, for one, even if you're not an Ataris fan, this is probably... If you're an indie rock fan, like, Shoegaze or, like, you know, I mean, even, like, Interpol or, like, Dinosaur Jr. or, like, I mean, just there's just so many different infos on there it Was like, you know, there's like fuzzy indie rock at times. There's like, there's songs on there that are a little kind of power poppy. Like, you know, the Cheyenne line, I think one of, uh, you know, one of Chris's best songs, New Year's Day. I mean, what a great song, not capable of love. Um, just so many different great songs on that record. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's people who aren't Atari's fans who would like it. And then there are Atari's fans. So I think if you went back and listened to it, like, like, it's now on their, on the Atari's Bandcamp page, and uh, Chris Rowe kind of wrote, like, a little thing under it. And and I think, like, the first, the very first thing on it is, like, you're older now, your tastes have changed, go listen to this album again. Because he knows, and it's like, that's what he said. It's like, like, that's the first thing, if you go look on their Bandcamp. Like, like forget what you think. Like, yes, I realize that when this came out, you weren't a fan of it, but, you know, you're now 10 years older More than 10 years at this point, you know, like 13 years older. You listen to different music. You probably have different tastes. You would probably like it. And I think he's absolutely right. You know, I think so. I think a lot of people have come around to it where, uh, you know, there and there are still people like I've seen the Atari's live quite a few times. There are people who go who only really know like so long a story like that record was so big. There are they still get a lot of people, not not everyone in the crowd, but there are people there is a mix of like people who are there for just so long a story. There's some people who are there for like just like Blue Skies and End is Forever Era. And then they like me, like I love all eras, so I'm there for you know. And there's definitely a lot of people like me out there who are you know fans of every era and just you know want to hear shit from all of it. And I think there are there are it, it's not the entire crowd, but they will play songs occasionally from Welcome the Night. And there's people who still never heard that album, so it's like you know they kind of don't have the same reaction. But the people who know that record seem to really they get a. Re- it's one of those songs where it, the whole crowd doesn't go nuts, but there's a there's a handful of that crowd that fucking love it, that like they go like they make up for the rest of the people not being as into it. They're them being into it makes up for that. You know, if, if you get what I'm saying, like the excitement of it and whatnot, you know, the other reason. I mean, for one, I think they also realized that uh, people want to hear because that was the other thing after I, it, they kind of went the other way, like after it, it went that way, I think Chris kind of turned around. And started kind of going more for a while, like, all right, well, now now I'm only playing things from, like, Blue Skies and is Forever, forever and stuff. You know, like, he did kind of go that way then after, where for, I think, years didn't really play any Welcome the Night stuff. Only played, played kind of, like, the hits and the fan favorites. And, you know, now it's kind of a nice in-between where, like, yeah, they're not going to play tons and tons of songs off of it. But you will hear one or two from time to time. Like, I probably wouldn't even say you'll hear three in one set, but you might hear two songs off of it. You know, which which I'm more than happy to hear. The other thing, though, I know they don't play them live, too, is there are really weird tunings. I know, like, Not Capable of Love, I asked him to play that live before. And he's just like, it's the weirdest tuning. It's like, it's this, I think he even called it his My Bloody Valentine tuning. It's hilarious because I remember asking him on Twitter years ago to play it live. And he gave me... You know, because Twitter, what do you have, like 140 characters? He gave me, like, a three-tweet explanation. Like, he needed three tweets to explain it all, which I thought was the nicest thing. Like, he could have just been like, fuck off, kid, I'm not playing that song. Or he could have just not answered me. But instead, he gave me, like, this three-tweet like tweet response on why he couldn't play it. And it was because, I mean, for one, they don't really play it live, so they you didn't know it all that well. But, like, also, it's this really weird tuning it You know, it just would not work. And they went into like how he always wanted to write a song in this weird My Bloody Valentine tuning. How I was influenced by that. And just really explaining it. All from me just being like, hey, would you play? And I think I did add that though. I'm like, I know it's in a weird as fuck tuning, but would you play it? And uh, I think he liked that. And he did. He gave me this, this big old explanation. And uh, so so I can tell you that. If you've ever wondered why you don't hear that live, it's not that he doesn't like that song. It's just the tuning the tuning for it's really really odd, and also I think there's a lot of guitar effects on it that are only on that song that uh you know they may not have for their uh you know like live rigs, so it's like you know and who knows maybe when it sound is good, but you know there are reasons they don't play that one live, but not because you know chris doesn't like it i i definitely think he's still a fan of that album. The really cool thing I'll say too for them live is kind of them finding that happy medium is. You know, he's kinda of went back and like, you know, it's been like five years now, but I remember them doing the Blue Skies tour where they played that record front to back. Or not even front to back, actually. They played it in uh I don't even know what the choice for order was, but they just played in a different order than uh, you know, than in sequence. But what I really liked is that they would like jam on the bridges of songs. They would kind of do these like extended intros and stuff where it's like they still were the same songs. But they would add this really cool thing that kind of sounded like what they were doing on Welcome the Night. Like that kind of more mature side. Like they're these old like pop punk songs. You know, they're obviously written by like teenagers and like dudes in their early 20s but had this more mature kind of vibe, like, and really good musicianship, like, I mean, just these amazing just jams and stuff, like, like, On the Bridge of Your Boyfriend Sucks, like, is a good example of that, and I know they've done that not just on that tour, like, there's a lot of great videos, if you go see them play that throughout the years, where, like, they do this great just jam on the bridge of it, and it's, like, this just, it's amazing, and it's, like, watching it live, like, the energy of it, the build-up, and it's, like, it's just so much more of just a band just doing straight-up pop-punk songs. And it's really cool because they don't change them so much that if you're a fan, you know, you're not sitting there. They're not they're not one of those bands where, like, you go listen to them or you go see them live and you can't tell what song it is until halfway through. And you go, oh, I know this song. They're just playing some fucking weird version of it that no one knows that they're playing, like, their hit single because they're doing some weird, like, weird thing about it. Like, they don't do it like that. Like, you can tell the songs. You can sing along but they'll add these things to it they'll give it this new breath of fresh air where i think chris is an artist you know it keeps it fresh for him you know he's not just playing you know san dimas foot, you know high school football rules for the 5000th time like you know he he's doing something where it makes him excited too you know like he's still having fun too and uh, it's cool to see them kind of find that happy medium you know after watching you know after releasing welcome the night kind of writing off, you know, their uh, history, you know, and quite frankly, what made them big in the first place, and then going the other way and going, okay, well, that bit us in the ass, now we're only playing the hits. Now kind of being, I think, in a better place where it's like, you know, yes, we realize a lot of people here want to hear these songs, we'll play them, but it's like, we'll also you know, we'll also play some of the shit that we want to play and that, you know, we know that hardcore fans and people who have stuck around and, you know, listen to all the albums want to hear as well. So, you know, I, I, I really do enjoy that as a fan. But uh Welcome to the Night, such a slept on record. Um And another one where look at even if you're not a fan of the Ataris, if you're if you're a fan of that, like just I mean, indie rock, I know, is kind of general, but it's like Just fuzzy indie rock, kind of, you know, not straight up shoegazy, but, you know, definitely some shoegaze influence. Like, you got to listen to this record. It's so good and really, truly ahead of its time. I think had this record been released in 2012 and under a different band name, I think it would have been really, really big. I think this album could have been really fucking huge. I mean, truly, you know, I mean, just, just way too bad that it slept on, but a great record nonetheless and uh while there are tons and tons of more records i could talk about i know we've uh we've been doing this for about 90 minutes now so i'll keep it i'll keep it here to uh, one more but uh, i also want to say though too you know I would, I would love to hear from you guys anyone listening to this right now you know hit me up gmail.com. i want to know what records you think are slept on you know i'm this is just the tip of the iceberg you know cuz i could i i was even writing my list and i had to start cutting things out cuz i'm like you know i'm going to start talking about these albums And I'm just going to get to a point where it's like, all right, on hour seven, I might have to shut the fuck up. So, you know, I'm keeping I'm keeping this to like, you know, a handful of albums. But I would love to hear, um, you know, albums that you guys are thinking of when you think of slept on records. But a big star in space is the last one I'm going to talk about here. And this is another one. A lot of albums that uh, I've said this about almost every album on uh, on this episode. Far from my favorite record from the band. But still a great record. Now, a Big Star, I mean, they they only have four albums. So, I mean, they don't have such a catalog to, uh, you know, to to go through. But, I mean, this would be my least favorite of the four, but still a good record. Now, the biggest thing I got to say about this record is, you know, it is, it's a different record from the first three. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where it's like Big Star, in their initial run back in the 70s, I really feel like, you you know, you have your number one record, Radio City, and uh, third. And then it's like, you know, In Space is really a nice... Like, it, it's not a quintessential record. It's it's not their best work. But it's a good record. I mean, and for one, it is a damn fine power pop record, for one. I mean, it is... If you just listen to it as a power pop record and don't try to... If if you're going in expecting something, like like, because they were just... What they did for power pop, even which is, you know, funny enough, commercially, you know, they were not successful at all in their, uh, you know, back in their day. But since then have become such a huge influence on just so many people, you know, just such a huge influence on music in general. And, you know, if you if you don't go in going, okay you know, it's like the same album like that because it's not, you know, and it's not supposed to be. It's a record that they did. I mean, third came out, what, in like 1977, I think it finally came out, I know they recorded in 74, and it came out in like 77, so we're talking like 27 years in between albums, like I mean, a long, long time, like I mean, the longest of any of these albums that I've talked about on this episode, like about 27 years in between. And you know they they had been touring at this point for like a decade with the uh, with the new lineup with a uh, uh, you know obviously Alex and Jody but adding uh, John and Ken from the Posies who uh, which I thought was a great addition because that and that's what I want to get to on this album. The thing about this album is in a lot of ways it's partly a a Posies record as well. You know I mean Alex doesn't sing lead on all the songs. Uh, you know, Ken and John helped write songs on this record. You know, they they sang on the record, too. They, you know, they're half the band. So it's like, of course it's going to have a Posies influence. And obviously the Posies are hugely influenced by Big Star. So it's like, I mean, I think they, I for one, I don't think you could have gotten two better members for, uh, you know, that later era Big Star. You know, once they came back in 93, started doing the reunion shows uh, sporadically and, you know, and then doing, you know, eventually doing In Space, I think they were the best guys for the job because really they were they and still are a modern day kind of Alex Chilton Chris Bell duo. Like there's not like John Davis is like the other dude just writing like like modern day power pop like the best power pop like of like a present day that isn't like big star. It's 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 basically yeah like John Davis and then John R Ken Stringfellow like those those are your guys like those are. Those are the masters of it, and including John and Ken of just being, like, you want to talk about just knowing how to write, like, the perfect just, like, hook and chorus and just a catchy song, like, just so good at. And I think in space, like, you get to hear these dudes who, you know, at the time, you know, you know maybe not super new because the Posies had been around since, like, Late '80s, you know, you know, In Space came out in 2005, but still, the young guys, you know, in the the newer the new school power pop, and it's the old school and the new school playing together, and uh, also just knowing how much John and Ken loved Big Star and being able to play on that, you know, I, I think they cared, and I think the songs are really good. It's just once again, if you're going in that being like I want number one record, well, guess what, you know, I mean, for one, Chris Bell's no longer singing on it, and number two, I mean, you have half a different band. And those guys aren't, you know, those guys aren't them, you know, like you hear a song with like John singing on it and you may think of like the, po- you know, because once again, that's why it sounds like the Posies because you normally hear, you're used to hearing John singing Posie songs when you hear them there, including because it sounds like the Posies because it's power pop, you know, I, I just, I think it's in a way where it's like no matter what they were going to do, it's not going to be, you know, the same, it's not going to have the same impact as those first three big star records, but I don't think it was supposed to, I mean, once again, Alex isn't singing lead on every song, you know, not, there's quite a few covers on this album as well, you know, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, I'm happy they put it out, and I think there's good songs on it, but I, I don't, I would be very surprised if they went in trying to make a record that, that was supposed to be on par with the first three, I don't, I don't think that was ever the plan, to be honest, you know what I mean, like, I don't, I don't think Alex Chilton was ever trying to do that. That just wasn't Alex Chilton. Like if, if you talk to anyone who knows Chilton or who knew who knew Alex Chilton, I don't think in 2005 he was trying to write the next best big star record. And not in a way where I think he was writing shit. I just don't. He was writing what he wanted to write. You know what I mean? Same with that. Like that's why he did covers. That's why he did. Th- that's what Alex Chilton did his entire career. You know, talk about another guy who was reactionary to his success. You know, his his uh, you know very reactionary to uh, the success he had early on. And I get it. I also get it. But, you know, also the legacy of Big Star he had a reaction to, you know. And uh, and you hear both things. I, mean, I think he had I think he had admiration for it to a point, but I also think there were times where he was very much over it when maybe the fans weren't. You know, like like he was over Big Star when the rest of the world wasn't, you know. But I get it. He was also I remember talking to David Julian Leonard, who was a friend of his. And uh, you know, kind of that kind of that thing where he said like you know, the mainstream kind of hardened him. You know, he he was kind of screwed around by the music industry. And, you know, he had success very early on and he kept pouring his heart into things and not getting the results that he wanted. And, you know, I think it... I think that's what kind of made him the guy who was a little jaded at times, and you know was kind of a smart ass and a wise ass about things, and was you know was kind of reserved and kind of shut down when talking about certain things. You know that that that's just kind of the result of you know sadly his career. You know, I mean, a very underrated guy, which once again you know commercially. But he—that's the interesting thing. I mean, he had a hit with the box tops with the letter when he was like I think he was like fourteen. Like, he had a gold record at age 14 and never did again. Like, that was his biggest thing, and he didn't even write the song. And this guy wrote some of the greatest songs you've ever heard. Like, I mean, like, that man wrote 13. Like, you hear that song, and it's like, goddamn, like, that's one of the best songs you ever hear. But that got, like, never even an inkling of the kind of success that the letter did, you know? And and the box tops are great, you know, it's like, hey, like they're they're in their own thing and they're great for what they did. But it is too bad, and I think that's what hurt him, is like, you know, he had the success so young that then he tried doing his own thing and it was him, you know, it was his songs, it was his personality, and it didn't do as well, you know, it didn't it didn't sell like he wanted it to. And it was made for main, like that's the other thing. It's like not made for mainstream in the way that, you know, it's like conceited or like, you know, this really like, oh, we're we're writing this way because we know it's popular. But what I'm saying is, I mean, it's power pop, you know, like number one record should have been a fucking number one record. Like it was it was good and it should have been accepted by the mainstream. Like that that could have been played on the radio, you know what I mean? Like, in that sense. Not that it was written to be played on radio. Those are well written songs, but it's like those songs deserve to get that attention, you know? Just like that, you know, Alex had with the box tops. But anyways, I think that goes back to with in space where like, yeah, they put out another record, but it's like he wasn't He's not one of those guys where I think he really was like, oh, my God, I have to, like, live up to this. I think I think he cared less than, than other people. Not that he didn't care about the album, but it's like, yeah, we're going to do covers. I'm not going to sing on every song. You know, it, it, it's going to be something different, you know. And it, it makes one of those things where I think there's big star fans who like the album, but I think overall a lot of people just don't think about it much, you know? Like I, I think that's my thing overall is it's not even that it's super hated. I just think a lot of people forget about it. I think it's I think it's very much a forgotten album, you know? And it and it shouldn't be, because it's 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 a good power pop record. Like if you just want to listen to good power pop, this is the album. Like it's just like you get you get members of the Posies and members of the original Big Star and they're they wrote an album together and like this is like the outcome I thought was really really good you know it's it's not radio city it's not number 1 record but it's a damn good record you know I think it I think it does stand on its own you know and I think if you uh if you remember that and you just kind of go hey this is a this is like 27 years after the fact of third it's pretty damn good, you know? I mean, like, quit quit comparing it 27 years later to, like, this is, like, the next album two, three years later. It's like, no, this is just kind of a fun thing that they put out after touring for so long. They didn't even tour off the album. They kind of put it out and then didn't even tour off of it, you know? And as far as afterwards they played live shows, I don't know how often they played songs off of it, you know? Which I would have loved to have uh, caught them live. But, uh, yeah, you know, just in space... Not a bad record, you know. 15 years later, now, um, I think it does get some love. I know it was like pressed on vinyl again this year. Um, and and people, I think people have come around to it. I've seen people kind of be like, you know, I wasn't a big fan when it came out, and now I uh, now I kind of like it more. And I, I think people do, it's and it's not even like I don't even say it would be your introduction. Like, if you've never listened to Big Star, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like direct you to that album in particular. But it's like once you've listened to those three albums, the first three albums, like go listen in space. It's a a good it's a good album. You know, people just kind of don't talk about it and kind of forget about it. But I think that also talks about, too, how good the first, uh, you know, just that that first original uh, run of Big Star was that it's like, you know, those those albums were just so important to people. And they mean that much to people, you know, that it's like they just eclipse those ones. You know, sometimes people write albums that are just so good that they eclipse a lot of the other shit they do, you know. And uh, I think that's an example of that. But that is the episode. Those are slept on records. I mean, we're we're almost to to, uh, hour two here. So like I said, I have so many more records I could talk about. I was going to talk about Transit's Young New England for one, AFI's Crash Love, Um, I was going to kind of get into The Replacements All Shook Down and Don't Tell Soul. But it's one of those ones where I've talked about that so much that, you know, that that was one where I'm like, all right, we won't spend too much time on that. But, I mean, so many more albums that I just think are slept on that aren't bad records but don't get the credit they deserve. You know, 100% don't get the credit that they deserve. They they weren't bad records. They were just different from uh, what people were expecting, and uh, that's what make them slept on. But, uh, yeah, I would love to hear from you. Hit me up, powerchordhour at gmail.com. I want to know what albums you think are slept on. I want to know if you agree with uh, the ones I talked about tonight. You know, maybe uh, maybe you don't. Maybe you go, nah, man, you're wrong. That That's a shitty record, you know. Let me know, powerchordhour at gmail.com. But, uh, yeah, thank you so much for checking this one out. I enjoyed doing it. Don't forget to follow the show at Power Chord Hour on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We're on YouTube. We're on Spotify. And uh, we're on your radio dial, the Power Chord Hour radio show, every Friday night from 10 10 Eastern to midnight on 107.9 WFA in uh, Jamestown, New York. And uh, you can listen to that from anywhere. Stream us on the WFA mobile app at WFALP.com slash streaming. You can uh, stream the whole station there. And uh, go check out all the other great shows, too. There are other shows much, much better than mine. But uh, I love that station. and would love if you checked out the radio show. I play tons of music on there. Totally different from, not totally different from the podcast. I play uh, all, I basically play all the music that I talk about on here. I talk about the replacements on here. I play the replacements on there. That kind of deal. But uh, check it out. I would uh, love if you did. that. That's where it all started. We've been doing the radio show since 2016 here. And uh, I love doing it. But uh, that is going to be the episode for this week. Thank you so much for checking it out. We will be back next week, maybe with a guest, maybe not. I'm not sure yet. Um, I don't know. We'll tune back in and you'll find out. But uh, until then, for the Power chord Hour, I'm Anthony Merchant. Thanks for listening.